Good evening again on Good Friday. Good Friday is an interesting name, really, for a holiday, and it is a holiday around other parts of the world. When I lived in England, one of the most secular places, really, in the Western world, you got the day off from work for Good Friday and for Easter, and yet I just watched a thing on YouTube, an interview with some guys trying to explain and figure out what Good Friday even meant in England. And It was quite sad, but it is an interesting name to call it Good Friday, because on Good Friday, we memorialize the gruesome torture and the murder of the only truly innocent man in all of history. So we remember tonight, really the most cruel and the most heinous crime that has ever been committed, yet we know that it was foreordained by God in His perfect wisdom and his perfect love, and his perfect goodness, all to save a people who would repent and turn to him. We remember that the very God who created us, the very God who gives us all good things, right? All good things come down from the Father of lights, the God who gives us every gift, every beat of our heart, every breath that we take. That is the same God who will very justly and very fairly condemn every single person who has committed a sin against him. And that is every single person, of course. And yet it is the same God who saves us from that judgment, who saves all who will repent from sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. It is that same God. And what we see in this is that perfect judgment, perfect justice requires tremendous sacrifice. And so we approach this evening, when we approach the cross and the topic of the cross, we approach it with a certain degree of grief. If we could witness it in real time, we would approach it with shock and with horror, because we haven't seen anything like it. But ultimately, we come to the cross under God's grace, in humility and with deep gratitude. That is how we approach the cross. But that, of course, is not how everybody approaches the cross of Christ. The cross itself is scandalous, and it always has been. It is central to Christianity. Without the cross, without Jesus going to the cross to pay the price, there is no justification whatsoever. There's no forgiveness of sins. There is actually no gospel. There is no good news without the cross, which is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. It was inconceivable, of course, to Jews in the first century that the Messiah that they waited for to come and deliver them from all of their earthly troubles, that he would go and die the death that only the worst of the first century criminals died. And of course, it was foolishness, complete and utter nonsense to the pagans that anybody would worship a man who was crucified, and call him a savior who could not save himself. That was then. It doesn't get any better today. We know this. Books continue to be written. Videos continue to be filmed. A book came out this year, blaspheming God, degrading the work of Christ, and asking a question that has been asked so many times that it makes no sense. What type of God, it asks, would pour out his wrath on his son. Who 
could believe in a God like that? It's a ridiculous question. It's a ridiculous question because what it presumes is that there is no penalty whatsoever for sin against an infinitely perfect and holy God. It's an easy one to answer. What type of God would do this? Well, for the Christian, the one who knows God, we just have a one-word answer for that. What type of God? God. God would do this. There is only one God. The God revealed in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the God who declared through the prophet, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It is that God, the God, the unchanging God, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly existing and manifesting light and love. It is a perfectly good God. The title of our sermon, it is up there now, is Good God, Good Friday, Good News. So, pretty good hint to the structure and where we're going with this sermon tonight. Let me read for you 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, and then verse 25. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Then conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile, that is, your life here, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was Christ's blood that purchased us. Verse 25 says, the word of the Lord remains forever and looks at that and says, This word is the good news that we preach to you. Your salvation came at an insurmountable cost. It was the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, the only perfect man shed on that cross. And as his blood was shed and as he gave up his last breath, we look back and we say, that's good Friday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again come humbly before you praying that what is preached tonight is true to your word, that it exalts our Christ, our Lord, Jesus himself. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now this is going to be based off of Romans 6, 23. But what you'll see in this sermon is it could just be selected scriptures. It's a little different than what we normally do. But Romans 6, 23 makes a good jumping off point. Because in this one verse, you read a truth, but in order to understand that truth, you must understand who God is. You need to understand who God is, and then you need to understand who we are, what our plight is in front of a holy God. And from that, then you see in the text a simple statement about the good news of Jesus Christ, how a very good God saved repentant sinners by his grace uh, through the work that was accomplished on Good Friday. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a free gift. Eternal life is a truly free gift because you do nothing. You can do nothing to earn it. All you can do is pay your own penalty. So it can only be given by an infinitely good God who pours out His grace upon us. But it starts with His goodness. And for that, I want to turn to Luke 18. 
If you look at Luke 18, verses 18 and 19, what you see is the beginning of a discussion between the rich young ruler and Jesus. And the discussion begins this way. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he didn't believe that Jesus was God. He believed that he was a really wise rabbi. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now that should ring in our ears as those who follow God and worship Him. That is a wonderful truth. We worship a good God. But it should also be terrifying to us to understand that truth. Because if no one is good, not one person is truly good in and of himself or herself, Only God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only God is good, then we don't stand a chance. We don't stand a chance in front of Him. We stand condemned in front of Him as those who sin against Him. Now, many want to deny this, and they do it in one of two ways. The first is to look at this and say, oh no, we are good. In fact, we are good because we want to use our own definition of good. And that is a tremendously flawed way of looking at goodness. You see it all the time, but history has shown us that we have an ever-changing standard of what good actually is. What was deemed abominable a hundred years ago is deemed normal and good by some today. It all depends on your culture and your point in history in which you live. Ernest Hemingway, the writer, was once noted for saying... That anything that makes you feel good is moral and good. So how about that for a standard? Anything that makes you feel good. Well, if I want to do something that makes me feel good, that makes you feel bad, how is that good? To have a human standard of goodness simply doesn't work. Who would be the ultimate judge? Would you feel good if you got to be the judge of who was good? Would you feel good if you had to come to me and I was the judge? of who was good? Or how about your neighbor? Or how about somebody in a foreign country that you've never met that gets to decide what is good? Even worse, what if it were someone in the future? How many times do we look back at history? And we look back at history and we condemn men and women for their behavior and for their practices, sometimes very rightly so. But we have to acknowledge that in their cultural context and in their time, What they were doing, they would say, was good. So this is a standard. It is a nonsensical argument that just doesn't work. It will ultimately condemn every man and every woman. It's unworkable. It makes essentially every attempt to shake our fists at the almighty God who created us and say, no, but we are gods. We determine what is good. But instead, we can look to the words of God the Son himself, who said, only God is good. He sets the standard. He has given it to us in his revealed word so that we know what it is. But there's another objection then that some will make on Good Friday, which is, if God is good, they say, then he can just overlook my sins. I'm not that bad a guy. I don't do that many bad things. And none of you do either, I'm sure. Not when you look at somebody else. They're the bad ones, right? A good God can overlook my sins. They're just not as bad as the other guy. God, we want him to grade on the curve. 
We just don't want to be an outlier, right? But that is all stemming from not knowing God, not knowing who God is. Because Psalm 5-4, just one of many, many verses to this point, tells us that wickedness and evil and sin cannot even dwell in the presence of a holy God. Wrath is the natural outcome of holiness coming against sin. Sin cannot dwell in His presence. Not just those sins that we deem bad sins, and our small sins are okay. No, every sin is against an infinitely holy God. That creates a problem. God is holy. His very being is one of truth, perfection, justice. And He has revealed Himself to us in this way, in the Bible. You will remember that Moses asked God, can you please show me your glory? That's all I want to see. I want to see your glory. And God responded to him in Exodus 33, 19. The Lord said to Moses, I will make my goodness pass before you. My goodness. And he did. And we read of what he did in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and so far we're thinking that is our definition of good. Stop there, please. He loves us and he forgives us. We want no more, but that is not how he reveals himself. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That should make us all say, how? How will he do this? How can he forgive the sinner, but never clear the guilty? Never overlook it. Now we know this intuitively. We know that when you see injustice in this world, when you read a news story about a judge who lets somebody who committed a terrible crime off because they received a bribe, and we see that corruption, nobody takes a step back and looks at that judge and says, boy, that is a really good judge. Just to their core, they're good. No, we don't see that at all. God is good. God is perfectly good. There's no other like him, and he therefore must be perfectly just. He has to execute justice perfectly, and we are guilty. We are sinners before a holy God. He can't ignore our sin because that wouldn't be justice. That would not be fairness. And fairness is something we often fall back to. Well, it's not fair. But in all fairness, in every sense of the word fair, then we each, every one of us, deserve eternal punishment for our sin and rebellion against God. What this tells us is we stand condemned. We need a Savior. Because we have no hope without a Savior. And in His infinite goodness, God reveals something else about Himself. He is merciful. Maybe not to all, but he proclaims in Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's justice is guaranteed. We know that. Romans 6, 23, where we started, tells us that the wages of sin, what we earn, is death, eternal death. But mercy comes in the form of that latter part, the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
We were created by a good God. That much is true and we know it. But we also know that when we start out, our fellowship with Him is broken because of our sin. We are alienated from Him because of our sin. But Romans 3.23 makes this perfectly clear and there's no exception clause to Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who has been born has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We're just not that good. We can do good things. That is for sure, and many people do, but we are not good. In fact, if we do good things that are not done solely to glorify God in accordance with His will, then all we do is confirm what God has spoken through the prophets. In Isaiah 64, 6, he says, We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds, every good thing that we do, is like a polluted garment, a filthy rag. This is a terrible, terrible predicament because we know that the wages of sin is death. Revelation 21.8 tells us that we will all be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, conscious eternal torment for our sin. We have a good God. We're alienated from Him. We're deserving only of His wrath. And then what? Into this terrible conundrum comes the Son of God incarnate, bursting into human history, taking on human flesh, born and lived as the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we gather tonight to remember the most condemning event in human history, starting from that position, and then the ultimate act of human rebellion against an all-powerful God. Because 2,000 years ago, more or less, an innocent man was betrayed by one of his followers, was arrested by the authorities, He was mocked by all of the people who he was trying to help, who he was trying to save. They mocked him just as they do today. He spoke not a single word that was evil, that was sinful. And he was instead not loved, but spit upon and beaten. His flesh was torn from his body by whips that were cast across his back. A man who obeyed God perfectly in every single way, was hung on a cross, naked, humiliated, nails pounded through his hands and his feet, stretched out to die one of the most excruciating deaths that man has ever come up with to torture fellow man. And that man, that innocent man, was Jesus, the Christ, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, It was the wickedness of man that tortured and crucified our Lord. And we look on that and say how horrible it was, but we have to recognize that it was also in perfect fulfillment of God's plan to save us. To save people who will repent, who will believe in Him. It was His plan. You see this succinctly stated in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, 23. That's a wonderful statement. He says to the Crowds, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan to save you. But guess what? You're guilty. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yes, God can use evil and good to achieve His perfectly good plan. It was always His plan to send Christ to the cross. And in this we can take a great joy and great comfort in life because we see that no creature 
no matter how they try, can ever thwart the will of the sovereign God. He always accomplishes his will. He accomplished his redemptive plan. No man can get in the way of that. You cannot crucify the Savior and win. Oh, we can think of Psalm 2, right? We know Psalm 2, the men gather together, rulers and kings gather together, planning their revolt against God, and he looks at them and he laughs and he holds them in derision. And he looks at them and says, I have set my king on his holy hill, and he will rule with a rod of iron. No man gets in the way of God achieving his plan. But we can't look back and distance ourselves from what happened 2,000 years ago. Make no mistake about it, through our own sins, we all contributed to the torment of the cross. We are, in a sense, legally guilty. We are accomplices to the murder through our sin that we committed that put him there. And it is God's gracious, God's gracious intervention that keeps us from standing as condemned men and women. When we know all of this, when we know how we start, and we know what he did, it's such an odd thing in a way that we've always called this Good Friday. You could almost come up with a different term for it. I'm not very creative, Black Friday or something like that. So why do we do that? Why is it good? You can start by understanding that the only good that exists is God. And he is unchanging. Right? We read in Malachi 3.6, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The attributes of God are unchanging. He doesn't learn. He doesn't grow. He doesn't change his mind. He didn't come up with this plan because something else didn't work. This was the plan. It was the plan from before time. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly just. He doesn't change. And that leaves us with a big problem. How can God save a rebellious and sinful people while remaining perfectly just and not overlooking sin? It becomes very circular without God. Thankfully, God intervened. In his perfect goodness, God had a plan from eternity past. There is only one way that he can accomplish this. Someone has to pay the penalty for our sin. Someone has to step in and satisfy the wrath of God that must be poured out against sinners for the sin that they commit. And that includes all of us. And that is Christ. And that is why we call it good. That is why we can look at the cross and what happened there and say, this is good. It is because this is the free gift of God. Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is good, and this is God's love shown to us in a way that we could never imagine. We all know John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you read that verse and you think through it, Good Friday is implied in that verse while the good news is proclaimed more directly. But John 3.16 is so familiar that it is one of the few things that Christians can still post almost anywhere and not have it taken down. Even the most reprobate sinner out there can cite John 3.16 and kind of feel sort of good about it, not really think too much about it. And that's because people rarely read the full paragraph. 
The Bible was not given to us one verse at a time. The Bible was 66 books telling one redemptive history. John 3.16 through 20 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That was the first coming. That is pointing to the cross. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. No matter where you turn to Scripture, any of these favorite verses, the forgiveness of our sins, our reconciliation to a holy God can and must only come in one way. And it is not through our merits. We certainly don't deserve to be reconciled to God. It is not through our own works. There's nothing we can do to earn our own salvation. Our sin condemns us to pay the penalty of death. That's all we can pay. We can give no more. We can't do it through rituals. I can't do it for you. You can't find uh, uh, somebody behind the right shroud, wearing the right cloak, doing the right hand signals, giving you the right thing to eat or drink or say the right words. None of that will save you. There is no religious ritual that we can do to save ourselves. We can't default and say, well, God is love. God is love, so I must be okay. Maybe I don't have to believe God is love. And that is true. God is love. But God is holy. And God is just. And he is light in the darkness. And he's love. And so his love and his holiness do not cancel each other out. His love is holy. His love is just. It is perfect love. And his love has been shown to us. It has been made manifest to us in a visible way. 1 John 3, 9 and 10 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. It was visible, it was shown to us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So that by what He did, we could live. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The propitiation He's talking about there. What that word means is the satisfaction of God's righteous and holy wrath against sin. And he was shown as God's love to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice on the cross in substitution for sinners who will repent and believe in Christ for salvation. And that that substitutionary sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be perfect. You can't go to the cross and give yourself up for your son or your daughter or your parents or your spouse. You can only pay your own penalty. It takes someone perfect. And there was only one. And there is only one. It is Jesus Christ and that sacrifice took place on Friday many years ago. And it was called good. Because he was perfect. He was in perfect obedience all the way to his death. Philippians 2, 6 and 8 says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, his perfect obedience made Jesus holy and righteous. He was an unblemished lamb before he went to the cross. But that perfect obedience did not make Jesus our Savior. Our penalty for sin had to be paid. He had to do more. He had to go to the cross. The perfect Lamb of God living among us knew that there was one final thing that He must accomplish. He came to die. He says in John 10 that He is in control of His own life. He will give it up. Jesus knew that that time was coming. And as He approached Jerusalem, the holiday we celebrated last Sunday, Palm Sunday, He looked ahead and he warned those around him. In Luke 18, 31 through 33, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. It's an interesting statement. Essentially turning to them and saying, Do you know your Bibles? If you know your Bibles, you will know that everything that has happened from Genesis onward points to me and points to what is to come. And everything is about ready to be fulfilled. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. And will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And the disciples heard this and they didn't understand. And we can't really blame them for that. They're walking with the Christ who is doing all of these amazing things. And who could understand? Who wants to understand? That in order for our sins to be forgiven, that God would have to unleash His wrath on His Son, His perfect Son. You see, even walking in the presence of Jesus did not help them understand the absolute heinous nature of their own sin. And we don't understand how bad our sin is either. They couldn't understand it. We have a hard time understanding it, that the price that had to be paid to save them And to save us was a horrifying, torturous, excruciating death. The disciples just didn't get it. Why would it need to be so bad? Why would it need to happen at all? They didn't get it. We look back and we're so familiar with the events, they kind of just sweep over our heads most of the time. They don't have the crushing reality that they should, that our sin contributed to every single lash of the whip across his back, that our sin provided the weight behind each blow of the hammer, driving the nail through flesh and bone and into the the, uh, cross. We just don't see that when we look at the cross. They didn't know how bad it would be. I think sometimes we try to ignore it. It helps us then to say that we don't owe Jesus that much. We might owe him an hour or two on Sunday. But we really don't owe him that much. But if you understand what he gave, the price he paid to save you, you begin to see that you owe him everything. They didn't know. They followed him and they were confused, but Jesus did know. And he went into the garden on that Friday night and he prayed. And we know the substance of those prayers. Lord, if you can take this cup away from me, please do, but not my will, but yours be done. We know the prayers. 
And he prayed in earnest. Luke twenty-two forty-four says that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And you need to understand, Jesus wasn't afraid of the cross. Thousands and thousands of men had been crucified. Two would be crucified with him. That is not what caused Jesus to be on his knees, praying in earnest, sweating drops of blood. He looked as the perfect Son of God at the horror of bearing the weight of sin and the wrath that would be poured out upon him. That is the cup, the cup of God's wrath. But he was committed to his Father's will. He was committed to save those who believe. He was committed to all of us. And he never wavered from his mission. He was betrayed by one of his own. He was arrested. He was condemned by the religious leaders. And we pick up there in Mark 14, 64. The religious leaders all condemned him as deserving death. Now this is quite amazing when you think of this. But we imagine this scene, but we tend to forget These are the most religious people around. These are the people everyone looks up to and says they know God. They follow the rules. They are the most religious people. And some began to spit on him and cover his face to strike him. Great fun. Saying to him, prophesy. Tell us which one hit you. This is fun. And the guards then received him with blows when he was handed over. He was tortured, he was spit upon, he was rejected by those who needed him the most. This is the dying person staring at a doctor with the only cure and shouting out, murder the doctor, I'd rather die. These men were so clouded by their sin and their pride, they thought, let's kill the Savior. They fell into the devil's lie, did they not? In Genesis 3, you can be like gods, just kill him. He was bound, he was beaten. They handed Jesus over to the Romans, to Pontius Pilate. And the people shouted, crucify him. And we're going to read the account in Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby because Jesus, having been beaten, mocked, been up all night, was physically weak. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is to deaden the pain of the cross. But Jesus would go to the cross, and Jesus would bear the wrath of God for the sins with a clear mind, not clouded by wine mixed with myrrh. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take, all in fulfillment of prophecy. You can go back and look at Psalm 22. It foretells this. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and, oh, then we'll believe. He hung there, dying. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, the wrath of God being poured out on the sun. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. You need to understand that for what's coming next. Nobody on a cross dying of crucifixion utters a loud cry. They die slowly and they suffocate to death. They can no longer push themselves up to get a breath. That is what makes this so unique. He utters a loud cry. He gives up his spirit on his own. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had witnessed thousands, likely, of crucifixions, Stood facing him, he saw in the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. People are obsessed with self-esteem and self-worth. How much are you worth? If you are a believer, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved by him, then you are of infinite value. Think about that. It does not matter what anybody tells you. It doesn't matter what you do in this life. You are worth an infinite value. The price paid for you, for your life now and for all eternity, was the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. He suffered and died for you. He bore the wrath of God for the sins of all who will believe in Him. If you just believe. Now if the story ended there, if it ended with the cross, there actually would be nothing good about Good Friday. There would be no Lord, there would be no one to worship, for Jesus would simply just be a guy that got crucified and was dead and buried and that's it. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 makes the point so clearly. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We're not going to end the story with Christ on the cross tonight. We, we don't worship a dead Jesus. We worship a risen Lord. So thankfully the story did not end at the cross. A perfectly good God fulfilled his perfectly good plan to save all who will follow Jesus Christ when they hear the good news that occurred three days after Good Friday. He is a good God. The gospel is the good news. That is the very definition of what gospel means. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, it is summarized about the shortest way, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures foretold from start to finish. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So for all those who turn from sin, for all those who will believe in Jesus, 
The salvation that was accomplished by Jesus as he breathed his last, as he made that last shout that Mark points out, we know what those words were. John 19.30 tells us what those words were. He shouted out, it is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is complete. It is done. The sins of those who will believe have been paid for. There is nothing to add to this work. There is much to receive. We must receive the completed work of Christ by our repentance and turning to Him, by our genuine belief in His person, His sinless person, and the work in obedience and in going to the cross and paying the penalty for us. And all of that should be evidenced by who is first and foremost in our life, who we worship, when we worship, how we worship, how we love one another. If we love him and understand what he did, because his sacrifice for our sins was not left alone, it was accepted by God the Father, and then it was evidence that it was accepted in about the most powerful way you can imagine. This brutally murdered piece person, a crumpled up corpse thrown into a grave, was brought to life, bodily resurrected. His sacrifice was accepted and sufficient. He would be the first fruits of all who would rise. Salvation is what we celebrate mostly on Easter because we talk about the risen king. But it starts here. Without the cross, there's no resurrection. But it's so important to grasp this. Salvation in Christ is exclusive. It is absolutely exclusive. That is one thing the world hates. He must be Lord of everything in your life. No greater price could be paid to save you. There is nothing that you could give. There's nothing that everybody in this room together could give that would equal what was given to save you and grant you eternal life if you will just follow Christ. We know no greater debt than we owe to Him. And that is why it's a little easier, once you understand that, to go back to Luke 9, and you find this in the other Gospels too, when Jesus talks about what it will take to follow him, to be saved. People must have thought he was a little harsh until they understand what he would do to pay the penalty. He says in Luke 9, 23 to 25, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow the risen Lord, if anyone is going to follow him, to be saved, to walk in his path toward that cross, but walk into glory for all eternity. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The rewards we can get now are nothing. They will vanish. Your eternal life will not. To believe in Jesus Christ is to receive life now and to have that life for all eternity. We all start as enemies of God. That is what the Bible tells us. But by Christ's suffering, by his substitutionary death on the cross, you can be reconciled to God. By his grace, you can follow a crucified Savior and a risen, living King. And you can serve him as Lord and follow him into eternal glory. 
Because in God's goodness, he extended mercy to us by punishing a substitute. So that we can stand in front of God. And when he looks at us and asks us, why are you here? Why should I let you in? Our answer will never begin with, because I. Our answer will always begin, because Jesus paid the price for me. And I stand here in all humility, knowing that my debt has been paid by my Savior. God will see only the righteousness of Christ in you. God exercised mercy. He pours out His grace. He punished a substitute, the perfect, eternal Son of God, incarnate, Jesus Christ. If you desire life, then you must turn to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Whereas Acts 4.12 says, there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Good Friday. It is very good. But only because the events that happened on that day were ordained by a good God. As part of ensuring that we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves us and that we can proclaim and share and call others to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your goodness, but even more grateful for your mercy. Lord, your goodness is marvelous, but standing as a sinner We all know that we're condemned by that goodness. So we're so thankful for your mercy. To pour out your grace. To give us not what we deserve, but exactly the opposite. By sending your son. By loving us. By showing us that love and his obedience. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for going to the cross. We cannot imagine. We cannot imagine the humility and the pain. All we can do be thankful. And so we cry out to you with our hearts tonight in gratitude and in love, pledging our followership to you, pledging our allegiance to you, asking for your strength so that we might walk in this world being known, being seen as true children of God, children of light, and that we might share the good news of what you did for us with all those who need that good news. Lord, we know that's everybody. There's not a man or woman alive who doesn't need it. But we need courage. We need boldness. And we pray to you, God, just as the apostles did, give us boldness to continue to walk with you and to share the news. Lord, we pray that we will recognize daily in whatever way that you choose to show us that you paid a price we cannot pay, and therefore we owe you a debt that we cannot repay. We can dedicate ourselves to you, worship you, and to honor you, and to glorify you. Lord, forgive us for our sins tonight. Continue to open our hearts to your word. And Lord, we pray advance, that you would be glorified on Sunday 
when we return to worship and remember that our Lord lives and he will return again someday. Oh, how we pray that that day would be soon. Pray this in Jesus' name, our Lord, our Savior, our Master, and our King. Amen.